Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today's Friday, July 21st, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we're about to air my interview with Sean B. Carroll. Before we get into things, here's a quick note from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. Today on TPT, we are joined by Sean B. Carroll. Sean is the head of HHMI Tangled Bank Studios. His studio is partnered with PBS Nature on an eight-part series called Wild Hope, which began airing on PBS.org and on the PBS app on June 15th. Sean's team highlights stories of changemakers who are restoring and protecting our planet through hyper-local initiatives. Sean, welcome to the planet today. Thanks for having me, Matt. So I want to start this from the beginning. What first got you interested in environmentalism? Well, I'm a biologist. So as a little kid, I liked going out in the woods and flipping over logs and finding creatures and all that. And uh, I took a long detour because I really became an indoor biologist, studying kind of the invisible things that go on inside bodies. Um, But as I became more of a storyteller and author and involved in filmmaking and things like that, um, it was obvious the world was changing in profound ways. And as I spent more time with colleagues who are ecologists and, you know, in, in firsthand position to understand what's going on, um, you know, if, if, if you love life and you love life on the planet, I think you become an environmentalist. I absolutely love that. But I could not agree more. And something I'd like to kind of dive into with that, with a background in biology and, you know, then pivoting your career into more filmmaking, how do you see the relationship between how we in the scientific community tend to, I don't know if marketing is the right word, but sometimes when we publish things to a, a larger audience, we can be kind of boring. And I feel like as a filmmaker, you probably have a better perspective on how to do it well. Well, I don't know that much better. I, I, let's just say, have I learned anything in my long journey? And that is tell a story. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think scientists initially start with sort of the, sense that if people only knew what we knew, sort of had the information that we have in our heads, everything would be okay. But that's not what makes humans tick. It's story in particular, stories that inspire us and move us. And, you know, we have narratives in our head. The way we see the world is a narrative. Hmm. So I think scientists have to fuel those narratives that people carry around, um, you know, give them, well, in many cases, a new narrative that, in my case, I would say that narrative is that there's an overwhelming sense of hopelessness out there, but the reality is all sorts of people are doing things to reverse the damage that's been caused. And once you see what can be done, it, it changes, it changes your outlook. It changes that 
that narrative. So it's it's so important for us to tell stories. And that sounds like make things up, right? Tell stories sounds like, you know, story time for children. Mm. No, it means narrative, cause and effect, uh, you know, chronicling things over time, et cetera. Just giving people more than just dry facts, but insight into who's doing what and where and what's happening. It's so important to, you know, present those facts, but in a way that's fun, because at the end of the day, you mentioned that there, there's a lot of, whether it's doom and gloom or hopeful stories, there are a ton of stories being told right now. And the best way to stand out in a crowd of a million stories is make it engaging, make it fun. Absolutely. And look, one advantage scientists might have, and we could go down a long rabbit hole of what happened over the last few years with things like COVID and all that. But hopefully we just have some credibility of being in command of the facts of being people who go out and try to get glimpses into how nature works. Hmm. Um, so we stand on that foundation, that tested evidence-based foundation. Um, but we need to weave a narrative that people can use. Uh, weave a narrative that people will, as you're describing, really lean into. Uh, otherwise, you know, our stories go unheard and our, you know, our, our contribution sort of uh, myth, our opportunity to contribute is is missed. And I think a lot of scientists have a concern these days about sort of science's place in the culture. Well, this is a storytelling and story absorbing culture. We we need mm. we need to kind of join that. So let's let's talk a bit more about the storytelling that your team works on with HHMI Tangled Bank Studios. So how did your career path lead you to that studio and, and what kind of if there is a focus, what kind of focus does your team have in your filmmaking? Sure. I'll try to make this one a little short. So um, as I said, <laughs> professional biologist, I was long time on the faculty at the University of Wisconsin, uh, professor with a lab teaching, et cetera, became an author, wrote books, wrote for the New York Times, told more and more stories, got asked to be in a lot of documentaries. But that experience of being out in the field with documentary filmmakers, I learned, I thought filmmakers and scientists had a lot in common. I, I love the work ethic. I love the passion. I thought we were complementary in so many ways. I love the talent of the visual storytellers, because I think that to me is pretty scarce in, in science. Um, but also had the sense that maybe structures were holding them back and holding us back from sort of doing our best collaborative work together. So when I got the opportunity to um, lead science education at Howard Hughes Medical Institute, which was the largest private supporter of science and of science education in the US, I told them, I said, I'd like to start a documentary film studio and have a science philanthropy that's mission-driven be actively engaged in the telling of these stories. And so a little over 10 years ago, we, we founded the studio and, and started you know, telling stories in all sorts of formats. We've made series like Wild Hope. We make IMAX films, one that just, just released and is in various places around the country you now, and Blue Whales and um, theatrical docs, like things that you'll see on HBO or PBS and things like that. So, um, you know, trying to tell a wide variety of stories to engage, you know, uh, public audiences and and even you know younger audiences in some of these formats. Um, so really, it was it was for my personal involvement. It was a really gradual process of more and more storytelling and more and more collaboration with great storytellers, great craftspeople, um, and that's that's really where we stand today. Gotcha. So something I had never considered, and you kind of just a light bulb went off as you were speaking, that the whole intersection between filmmaking and you know in this case biology or whether it's bio biology climate science really any sort of science it all kind of starts with that idea of 
hey, what if we looked into this? Yeah. It's not really going out and saying, oh, here's what we're probably going to find or here's what I want to make. It, it starts with a process of one idea and building upon that idea. And whether that turns into a film, whether that turns into a research paper, it, I'm sure it has a, a lot of crossover in how you go about it and the team you want surrounding you. It, it does. And I'll tell you, it, it sounds cliche, but and, and maybe other scientists will skewer me for it, but Science really is detective work and detective work has a natural narrative, right? You start with a question, you start with some clues, you start with some hunches, you test those hunches. Most of them aren't what you expect. They take you down a different road. You get surprised. You have to ask what this means. That naturally sort of can pull a viewer in, right, in in, in filmmaking. So, I mean, science is narrative. So I think working with narrative filmmakers, it's it's a natural way, but the, the power of film you might say, you know, what's different than say writing, because I've I've written a lot. The power of film to trance to really immerse viewers, but to, you know, show them invisible things, right? Otherwise mm-hmm. invisible things, or take them back in time, right? Or just take them out into the world that are, you know, difficult places to get to or to capture really rare moments in nature. So the power of film, you know, to immerse the viewer combined with you know the narrative structure of science. I I, I think it's it could be a winner. Um, you know, it's still, I think, niche audiences, you know, we talk about the science curious. It's not mass, mass, mass audience like, say, crime drama is. Um, but nonetheless, I think it's an appetite that can be nurtured. And we do make a lot of films, a sister organization to us that I'm deeply involved in called HHMI Biointeractive. We make narrative films for the classroom. And so, you know, we're we're kind of catching audiences where they are, whether they're captive in, an, in a classroom or whether they're volunteering their entertainment time with us on on the public airwaves. Gotcha. Gotcha. And then, like you said, just that probably transitions into people who are maybe instead of science curious, science interested. And that's that next really important step. Absolutely. Yeah. So how did your team begin to partner with PBS Nature and how did the series Wild Hope come to be? Yeah. So PBS Nature, we've been good colleagues with PBS Nature for a long time. You know, it's a wonderful strand at PBS, I think founded in the mid 1970s. And it really stands for you know excellence in wildlife natural history filmmaking and um i hope i've got this right i think the first film we did with nature was a film called um serengeti rules just happens to have been based on a book i wrote and um Mm. but the film which was made by passion pictures and and tangle bank um passion pictures is based in london it was really i think a different sort of film for nature it really focused on the people doing the discovering not so much just the subject matter of the wildlife and, and of nature. Um, film did really well worldwide, did well, you know, in terms of critical acclaim and all that sort of thing. Um, but uh, we've we've now done multiple projects with nature and we just know that, you know, we're all, we're really, really well aligned. Um, the leadership of nature led by Fred Kaufman, they're just wonderful people. And um, so so that's that's sort of the relationship with PBS Nature, but on the Wild Hope side, the, the appreciation that there's so many untold stories out there of people at all sorts of scales working to reverse the declines in biodiversity. And the most important thing that we want to emphasize is there's you know a lot of the discussion going on these days, people kind of equate environmental challenges with climate change and they kind of, everything sort of falls under the climate change umbrella. And this is not accurate. And it's an important mm-hmm. distinction because Climate change is a global phenomenon and it's going to require some global solutions. Biodiversity loss is essentially a local phenomenon due to local causes 
And the good news, if there's anything in there, is that local action can reverse it. We see this all over the world, whether it's you know, protecting an individual species or bringing back a habitat. But funny in the balance in the media is that we read a lot of stories or hear a lot of stories about, you know, people that spoil a river with mine waste or, you know, an oil spill or whatever. But we don't hear about the people who are bringing habitats back and bringing species back. It's a long, you know, it's, it's long incremental work. Yeah. And as we've looked around the world for these stories, we found hundreds of them. And so what we're doing with Wild Hope is bringing first in this first batch of eight, some stories that we think give us a variety of sort of themes of different approaches, variety of geography, a whole variety of people. A lot of the people in these films, they're not scientists. They're citizens that have become engaged. They're indigenous groups. They're young people that have become engaged. Um, but they're representative of all sorts of efforts, large and small, uh, going on around the world that are you know, really people working in their backyard. Their backyard might be as big as New York Harbor, mm. <laughs> but um, nonetheless, it's it's happening. And um, I just got back, if I can run on for a second, I just got back from Southern Africa and, and particularly from Mozambique where there's a national park there called Gorongosa, which may be the, the, the standout model of a, of a, of a rebound of a, of a wilderness because after 20 years of civil war in Mozambique, this place was devastated. It lost 95% of its large mammals. It was oh, wow. given up for dead. And after a 20 year effort, the place is just fabulous. I mean, it's wildlife everywhere. The, the numbers have rebounded to pretty much almost pre-war levels. Um, and it's teaching the world a lesson that it is possible for these places to, to come back. I, as I said, I was just there, you know, this month so i'm still, yeah i'm still jazzed from from being in gorongosa so in fact it was my personal experience in gorongosa about eight years ago that you know led me to think boy we we really need to tell these stories because we even have data we we do sort of research audience research at, at tangle bank and we have data that a lot of people believe that this is not reversible that the damage that's been done is not reversible and so we really need to give people a different perspective and that's what we hope to do with wild hope Gotcha. Yeah, I think something that you had mentioned that I, I just want to highlight for the listeners here is that the the climate crisis and the biodiversity loss crisis, they, they are both linked in a way, but they are so different at the same yeah. time and how their solutions come about. And two weeks ago, by the time this episode's coming out, we had Dr. Doug Tallamy from the University of Delaware on, and he talked about biodiversity loss and how we can basically reverse that in our backyards with his homegrown national park movement. Yeah. And the whole message you saying is we can all make a huge difference by creating a place for pollinators or for, you know, local smaller mammals to, to basically just restore the ecosystem on their own. All we have to do is give the ecosystems the tools it needs to run with it. Yeah. And I think with the biodiversity loss in general, people who, who don't really understand the science behind wildlife ecology will say, oh, it's just, it continues to decrease. The climate is also in crisis. What are we going to do? Well, like you said, there's a lot of these stories of people not only attempting, but succeeding in restoring biodiversity all across the world. See, see it's succeeding spectacularly. And and exactly in, in your backyard, a little bit of sanctuary and just understanding it, sort of not beating ourselves up too much, but, you know, realizing not only a little bit of a pollinator garden you can plant, but you know, don't don't spread so much insecticide, right? Yeah, that's not only knocking out the bugs; it's knocking out the things that eat those bugs and things. It's just being a little more aware 
of sort of our our small footprint um, and and making a little more hospitable to life. And I, I think the other thing that makes me hopeful is that people really want to see this stuff. You know, people yeah. are thrilled to see the woodpecker on the tree outside their door or, you know, to encounter a toad in the yard or butterflies, of course, flying through the garden. And we're missing this stuff. You know, we mm-hmm. know the numbers of these things are way down relative to, say, for example, when I was a kid. And uh, we miss it. You know, I mean, the monarch butterflies, when I was a kid, they were ubiquitous. That was like the only butterfly I knew because they were there in, you know, droves when I, where I grew up in Ohio. You know, now they've become scarce. And when you see reversal, and I, you see this definitely in, in various parts of the world, when people can see these creatures, they really want it. It, it enhances people's quality of life. I think it enhances, um, you know, their their sense of well-being to see nature um, themselves. And And so... I don't think this is, you know, just the narrow occupation of some specialist or whatever. I think this is a lot about sort of the health of society that we want to be, we want to have some nature around us um, and to realize that it's sort of there, that nature given a chance is so resilient that numbers will rebound in some dramatic ways if given a chance. Um, Get that message out there. And and I think, you know, when people see progress, they're going to be ever more inspired to, to pitch in. So running with that theme of inspiration and hope, why do you feel it's necessary to highlight that this series, Wild Hope, is not a doom and gloom series, but as the name kind of implies, a, a series of hope? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's based on the, it's inspired, I'd say, by the book by Andrew Balmford called Wild Hope. And when I read his book, I thought this is the right idea. He went around the world and gathered some stories, um, again, with various themes to show people, you know, reversing things. And um yeah, I, you know, hopelessness is, you know, this this is a crisis, right? I mean, mm-hmm. what, what, how do we act if we are truly hopeless? Not well, um, not not healthy for us, not healthy for the next generations. Yeah, and hope can't be faked, right? It can't just be blind optimism. Hope hope acknowledges that the outcome is sort of uncertain, but maybe if we do the work, we have a chance of tipping things, you know, in the in the other direction. It doesn't say, you know, put your blinders on and ignore the the bad things going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we do need hope. I think that's a fact. But I think there's reasons for hope. And that's what we have to sort of earn with the series. We need to show the people doing the work. We need to, you know, be rigorous in, you know, talking about sort of what indicators are of success or, or not. But this is the first season these first eight episodes that are out on pbs and they'll be streaming a little later in the summer um on some other platforms but we're already shooting season two and you know we had you know 200 stories to to choose from that were logged in we're going to go shoot 24 more stories um amazing and just no shortage right of of people doing these things and i think it's also a snowball which is the more people see what's going on and they realize that you know, a little bit of work on a local forest or a little bit of work on a local pond um, or a little bit of effort to protect some habitat for perhaps some nearby creatures um, will pay off. Uh, I think when people see that, they're, they're going to emulate that. And when we've sort of in prior efforts, efforts have given those opportunities, say, to plant pollinator gardens or whatever, their response is immense. Yeah. Tens of thousands of people participating in these efforts. And um, so I, th- I think hope could be contagious, just as I think pessimism can be contagious. Sure. But we got to change the narrative back to back to a more hopeful one. And it's such a tough problem to solve, because especially in the environmental field, 
so many of these solutions are going to have such incremental progress where we're not going to see the results right away. So, you know, you go plant your garden and it takes how long for the flowers to bloom and how long for birds and butterflies and bees to say, oh, those are the plants that we're used to seeing. Let's go over there. Yeah. The amazing thing, though, if I said to you, let's take a plate, I'll I'll take the extreme of Gorongosa, Mm -hmm. devastated by 20 years of war. If somebody said, well, if we start work today, maybe in 100 years, it'll be better. We're not motivated by waiting 100 years for something. But to almost everyone's astonishment, within five to 10 years, the changes were measurable. And now 20 years later, the, the, the place is filled to the brim with, with large mammals. So, you know, that's a really short time frame, And I think this is, you know, while it takes a little while, it doesn't take as long as people think. Putting wolves into Yellowstone, there were measurable effects in a few years. Um, you know, protecting individual species, you can, you know, we know this, for example, in fisheries, you can see fisheries rebound very, very quickly. Um, there's a story in the series of taking down the Elwha dams um, in the Pacific Northwest. We're only about 11 years into that, 11 or 12 years into that. But again, in a few years, you could see the difference. So the rewilding, you know, na- people say things like nature finds a way, mm-hmm. right? You know, nature will reclaim these places, these habitats, you know, given a chance. And you can almost, almost right under our own eyes you know it's it's the time scale is such that i think it is very gratifying to people and motivating because you will see this in a reasonable amount of time i love that and that's that's amazing to hear as well because you know like i said a lot of these problems seem like they have incremental solutions but if nature finds a way quicker than people might expect maybe that gets them to join in the fight a little bit sooner i want to talk specifically about this first season of wild hope and i'm curious if there's an episode or maybe a series of episodes that stood out to you as particularly impactful. Oh, you're, <laughs> it's, like asking... it's just like asking you who your favorite yeah, kid is. Exactly. Or what's my favorite <laughs> animal or something like that. Look, I think we, we really like stories of sort of unexpected alliances. So I would say one of my favorite stories comes out of North Carolina and it is the ultimately the collaboration between um, conservationists and the U S military, the army in particular, well, it's now called Fort Liberty, but it was called Fort Bragg until very, very recently. Mm-hmm. It just turns out Fort Bragg was great habitat for this woodpecker, habitat that had shrunk all over the Southeast, this longleaf pine habitat. And originally, the military and the conservationists were in conflict. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to give the story away other than to say, um, let's suppose, I think it takes some surprising twists and turns in the story. So it's, it's one of my favorite stories because... You know, we're also up against sort of these cultural, especially in the United States, divisions or partisan divisions with a sense that, you know, mm-hmm. gee, we're too divided, we can't get along. But again, I think this is an arena where a lot of people uh, can come together. A lot of people would like to see wildlife thriving on their lands or on public lands or where, wherever it might be. And that story in particular shows folks that might be coming from a little bit different ideological spaces, finding a lot of common ground. And, you know, we don't have enough examples of this either. So we were conscious of finding um, stories where, uh, you know, folks pitched in together who you might necessarily not expect to see working elbow to elbow with each other. Gotcha. So I know you had mentioned earlier that you're beginning to shoot season two of Wild Hope, but 
What is next for you and for the team working on Wild Hope? Well, it, there's a big outreach campaign. So one of the privileges of being a philanthropy is that um, you know we're mission driven. We're not revenue driven. Things like that. Fortunately, mm-hmm. we have the the resources of the philanthropy behind us. And what we really want to do is big build a big community in both here in the U.S. and globally. Um, if you go to wildhope.tv, you can sort of join that community. You'll be connected. We're going to start rolling a lot of material out on on social media, um, and uh, the the website will have lots of information about sort of what are the principles that are being used in these in these sort of wild hope stories. Um, so, two things really for Wild Hope are are engage the world at different scales, um, build a community. Uh, we're reaching into classrooms because the sister organization to Tangle Bank, Biointeractive, has a presence in virtually every biology classroom in the United States. And so we think it's really important for students to see these stories and see what's possible. And we've we've uh, screened these films in front of large groups of teachers, large conventions of, of, of science and biology teachers, and uh, which has only confirmed our hunch that teachers are thirsty for this as well, because sure. it's been a rough time for the last few years in the classroom. And I think people need stories of inspiration and hope. So I think it's build the community and go around the world and, and find more stories that that highlight important themes and show us the, the variety of ways that people are coming together to, you know, make their own lives better and make life better around them. Yeah. And you know what? I'm sure there is absolutely no shortage of people who are doing amazing work, be it globally at a larger scale or, or even just at home. So I'm very excited to hear this story. Yeah. And, and one thing we hope is that these stories will will help them in their own work. So it's one thing to just, you know, tell a story somewhere and get it out there in mass media. But as people are aware of what's going on in their own backyard, hopefully that will galvanize support for some of the um, groups that we spotlight. And, um, you know, that, that will, that will help them along as well. So it's not just a matter of, you know, turning on the cameras, but actually kind of, you know, upping the energy that's, that's around these initiatives. Gotcha. All right, Sean, this was amazing. I had a really, really good time talking to you and I'm really excited for the listeners to, to hear this episode. If people want to keep up with you and your team, where is the best place for them to do that? For Wild Hope, go to wildhope.tv and, and join in. There's a newsletter you can join stay tuned for developments obviously check out the series it, you can check your local listings for so it's linear on pbs television it's on pbs.org it's on the pbs app it's rolling out on streaming uh pbs nature's uh youtube site right around the first of august um we don't i think i should mention we're trying to make these shows freely available to everyone cool. right so um that's that's also our goal is that there's no barrier to getting access to these to these shows and to sharing them with each other. So, um, you know, join, join the movement and, uh, hopefully it will give everybody a bit of a lift. Great. So we'll link all of those in the show notes. If you're listening right now, just swipe up and you can click on pbs.org to go watch the episodes or wildhope.tv to go check out more. Sean, we end all of our interviews with three fun rapid fire questions. You did allude to one of them earlier. So are you ready? Yep. Number one, what is your favorite animal? Snakes. All right. Number two, what is something you do to be more sustainable in your own life? Oh goodness! Oh yeah, I'm gonna, you're going to stump me because uh, <laughs> it sounds it sounds so self uh, congratulatory. Uh, I've really reduced meat eating. Great. And number three, what is one topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? Sure, they should be more aware. That there's a lot more grounds for hope all over the world. Join in. Awesome. Thank you again. Really enjoyed your time. Thanks so much.
And that will do it for today's episode of TPT. We'll be back next Friday for our last interview of July with special guest Tucker Perkins. Until then, go check out our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT. For the Planet Today, I am Matt Norton. See you next Friday.